Well, good morning. I'm going to see how responsive we can be. I might have you all uh, shouting back and forth here before the end. I don't know. Uh, the, uh, you know, I'm from a Baptist context. Um, I started to grow as a Christian in college in a, um, in a charismatic Calvinist context and then got trained in a Presbyterian context. So I think I've, I've traveled the, the whole circus world of, uh, of Christianity, at least evangelical Christianity. And, uh, and, and I heard a story once, uh, it goes like this. Um, there was a, uh, there was a, uh, a citywide uh, gathering of different local churches and uh, the Presbyterians, the, uh, the Baptists, and the, uh, the Pentecostals all got together for worship service. And it started getting really exciting. And so the, um, the, uh, the Pentecostals started to jump up and they, they started screaming, fire, fire, fire. And the Baptists jumped up and they started screaming, water, water, water. At which point the Presbyterians dutifully jumped up and started screaming, order, order, <laughs> order. So uh, here I am today in a Presbyterian context. Um, you might be shouting order here very soon. Anyhow, it's a delight to be with you. It's, it's a blessing. It's a privilege to know some of the brothers uh, who are here, uh, Mark and, um, and Phil. And uh, I did not know about Carl. So he's thinking about abandoning us, huh? Yes, it's a, it's a good abandonment, though. We'll see how the Lord is leading. Wow. So you would know Carl from your instruction. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, that was, uh, that was encouraging to hear. So we pray, definitely want to be praying for him. Uh, my... my, my text this morning comes from Jude. Uh, there's only one chapter, but I often say Jude 1 or Jude chapter 1. So if I say that, please forgive me. But we're in the, the book of Jude, and we'll be looking at verses 17 through 25. But this is a part one kind of message. I'm going to come back in a couple of weeks, and I'll give you part two. And technically, there's a part three. So we'll see if, uh, if, if I get invited back for that one. But um, the reason for my message uh, from Jude is that um, the, uh, the letter here that he writes addresses a situation in the church that I think is very similar to the situation that's facing the evangelical world uh, today. Uh, there are issues that Jude deals with that are facing evangelical churches, um, uh, many uh, that, uh, that I'm aware of as well. And so um, I want to spend some time this morning with you talking about what Jude uh, discusses. Uh, but before I do that, I want to uh, just give a little bit uh, of an introduction to Jude as a book. Uh, the, the, the book itself uh, is written by uh, a fellow named Jude. And uh, in verse 1, if you look in Jude, uh, verse 1, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Uh, the author of this letter is Jude. Jude. Now, there are many Judes in the Bible. Uh, the name Jude here, is, sometimes uh, in your, your English Bibles, you'll see it as Jude. You'll see it as Judas. Jude and Judas are the exact same name in Greek. Uh, they just happen to be uh, anglicized, as it were, in different ways. Um, and if you had a son, you'd probably want to name him Jude before you'd want to name him Judas, just because of uh, the associations with the name Judas in, in, in the New Testament. But it's generally agreed that this Jude that we're talking about here, uh, and the James, who's the author of the book of James, that these uh, are the, uh, the half-brothers of Jesus. 
if you were to flip back to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, uh, the people uh, are discussing among themselves the identity of Jesus. And they say this, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And the James and the Judas that are mentioned here are Jesus' half-brothers. They share the same birth mother, uh, and they are authors of books of the New Testament. So Jude is a half-brother of Jesus, but notice something interesting here. He doesn't label himself as such when you read the introduction to this book, does he? He doesn't say, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus and brother of James. Uh, he actually calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. And I think that's very instructive for us. Uh, in one sense, Jude is like all other Christians because he's freed from sin to become slaves uh, to God. Uh, and, and he proclaims himself as a servant of Jesus as Lord. And so he doesn't sort of rest on his special affiliation with Jesus as one who grew up with him, who could appeal to his closeness to him. He wants to highlight his role in submission to him. He is the servant of Jesus Christ. The word servant uh, is both a term of humility as well a term of honor. Uh, Tom Schreiner puts it this way. Uh, he says, uh, Jude did not commence the letter by emphasizing the privilege of his brotherly relationship to Jesus Christ, but his submission to Christ's lordship. With the same term, servant, uh, Jude expresses his humility, since he was Jesus Christ's slave, and his authority since he was an honored slave of the Lord, as were those of the Old Testament era. So, for example, Moses is referred to as the servant of Yahweh. That isn't just a title of humility, it's a title of honor, too. Well, that is the author. What about the occasion of this book? Uh, what was going on that prompted Jude to write this letter? While Jude had been considering writing a treatise on the nature of the salvation that he shared with uh, his listeners, uh, and uh, when he was contemplating writing this, uh, he became informed about a serious problem that was going on in the church. If you look at verse 3, he says this, Beloved, though I was very eager to write uh, to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. False teachers had crept in. He goes on to say in verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. False teachers had entered the church, bringing not only vile heresies, but living and encouraging others to live godless and licentious lifestyles. And even worse, they actually defended their dissolute living with their theology. So the purpose of writing is both negative and positive. Negatively, he writes to warn believers about these wicked men. Jude seems to have a particular interest in describing these kinds of men in light of God's past acts of judgment against other likewise godless people. And so let me give you a, a flyover uh, about who these people were. Uh, looking at verse 4, as I mentioned, these people who crept in are described as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God in the sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
And then after reminding them in verses six through seven, how in the past God knew how to bring judgment and condemnation on three different groups of people who likewise were sinful. He mentions the unfaithful wilderness generation who left Egypt, who were unbelieving. The angels who left their proper domain, probably referenced to Genesis 6. <clears throat> and then the wicked of Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he highlights all three of these groups. He then goes on to paint a portrait of the false teachers, comparing their wickedness to these other groups that had uh, experienced the judgment of God. And notice especially the use of the expression, these, these people, these men, verse 8. Yet in like manner, like these other people that God judged, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. Verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted. Verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment. Verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed, boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And then verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So uh, negatively, the point of the letter is to address these false teachers, to identify them, to expose them for who they are, to warn believers against them when they come into your midst. Positively, the purpose is to encourage believers to earnestly contend for the faith. Go back to verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Four certain people have crept in. Notice verse 4 gives the rationale for why he would shift gears and write a more polemical, argumentative, and forceful letter necessitated by two things, one explicit and one implicit. What explicitly does he mention here? He mentions explicitly that he needs to change shift gears, and instead of just writing about positively the salvation they enjoy, but encouraging, the, to, encouraging them to contend for, for the faith, um, explicitly it's because the church has been infiltrated by these sorts of men. They are ungodly people. They pervert the grace of God and the sensuality. They deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, by saying that, what he's saying is that they have thrown off the Lordship of Jesus and replaced the authority of His Word with some other authority, self-will, the spirit of the age, a love for the, the culture and its approval. I think about, uh, as an example in our own day, uh, the theologian Robert Gagnon. I don't know if any of you know who he is. Are you familiar with Robert Gagnon? He's a New Testament professor who taught at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, actually a Presbyterian school, and, um, and most recently came to, to work at Houston Baptist University. But he is one of the few active New Testament scholars today who is actually willing to come out and argue against the prevailing uh, cultural view that the Bible condones 
homosexual behavior and homosexual marriage and other heterosexual perversions. And in a conversation that I had with Robert Gagnon, I guess it's now been probably a year and a half, two years ago, he made a very interesting observation. Formerly, in, his, in Gagnon's arguments with other biblical scholars, uh, they would want to find ways for Christians to accept homosexuality. And he would find that as they argued, they would try to, to, to tell Gagnon, look, Gagnon, you just don't understand what Paul is saying. Let me help you understand Paul better, because the Bible really permits the idea and concept of a gay Christian. You've just misunderstood Paul. You've just been misunderstood the Old Testament text. And so they would have this back and forth about what the text actually says and what it actually means. But Gagnon mentioned that in the last couple of years, the argument has changed. Now, his opponents, many of whom teach biblical studies and teach in seminaries, uh, they don't even try to build a biblical case for the homosexual Christian from the Bible. They will say, yeah, um, Paul was just wrong here. Let's just dispense with the Bible altogether. The Old Testament writers were wrong. They were stuck in this ancient way of thinking. We've moved beyond that. Our ethics have shifted beyond the scriptures. And we will find that if we will just leave the Bible, we will be on the right side of history. In other words, by no longer seeking to make a biblical case, by re-envisioning the Bible, they just reject it altogether because the Bible doesn't matter to them anyway. And my friends, this is just simply a rejection, a denial of Jesus as Master and Lord, as Jude talks about. How does Jesus exercise his lordship? He does it through his word. And when you reject his word, you reject his lordship. So that's the explicit reason that, Paul, that Jude felt the need to write this letter. There were certain men who crept in and were gaining sway in the congregation. There's an implicit reason that Jude felt the need to, to write this kind of a letter. And what I mean here uh, is, is not only have these kinds of men crept into the church explicitly, but there's an unstated assumption about this state of affairs that requires him to pick up pen and parchment and, and to earnestly zip off this letter. And it's, it's, uh, it's something that doesn't have to be said Jude doesn't have to say it, but I feel like today it does need to be mentioned. And that is uh, the implicit reason he's doing this is because it's not acceptable for the church to tolerate these things. I don't think anybody in Jude's day would have had a doubt about that. But in our day, people think it's, it's okay to have false teachers in your church and to tolerate it. And so we've got to make what's implicit explicit here. Right? To Jude, the concept of the church and ungodliness going together was unthinkable. Being one who was called of God is incompatible with being a grace perverter. Saying Jesus is Lord while denying him as master and Lord was a contradiction in terms and makes about as much sense as speaking of a, of a comforter made out of razor blades or talking about a peaceful terrorist attack. Unfortunately, in today's climate and evangelicalism, we cannot leave this unstated. For too many churches, ungodliness among its members is acceptable. People will say, judge not, lest you also be judged. God wants me to be happy and whole and to flourish. Churches don't practice church discipline for sinful people. Pastors and professors are not disciplined for teaching heresy. 
And so we must say explicitly and unequivocally that when apostate teachers infiltrate the church, when they begin to infect the church with open ungodliness, perversions of grace and denials of Christ, then we have to say enough. To be faithful to Christ, we must not only acknowledge that these things are present among us, but we have to contend against them for the faith that has been delivered to the saints. And so this morning, what I want to do is to begin to walk through that part of Jude's letter that expounds the positive purpose of the letter, how to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, how to contend for this faith in times of upheaval, apostasy, and moral decay, both in the culture and in the church. Or to put it another way, to expound on how the church can strive, survive, and thrive in troubling times. That's uh, the name of uh, my sermon title. So, Striving, Surviving, and Thriving in Troubling Times, Part 1. Uh, these instructions are found at the end of Jude in verses 17 through 25. And so, let's, uh, let's go there and look at that together. Verse 17. But, Jude writes, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, before I uh, begin, let me uh, just uh, encourage you... Um, one of my heroes in the faith is John MacArthur. I've admired him for, for a couple of decades now. I don't agree with everything he says, but uh, he has been a faithful pastor through many, many decades of, of fruitful ministry. And he has a wonderfully Baptist alliterative outline of this passage of Jude. If you've never listened to it, I certainly encourage you to do that. Now, I know you're Presbyterian, so you probably don't get alliterative outlines, right? But, uh, but his uh, alliterative outline, my, my wife actually drew my attention to this. And, uh, and, and I think it's a, a really good way of remembering the main point. So, so there are four R's if you want to write these down. Remember, remain, reach, and rest. Remember is found in verses 17 through 19. Remember, remain, 20 and 21. Reach or reach out. 22 and 23. And then MacArthur's final R is rest, although I would personally prefer the word resources. So that's verses 24 and 25. Okay, so that's just a, a quick outline of these verses at the end of Jude. Now the question that we're wanting to, to wrestle with today is how can a church and how can believers strive, survive, and thrive in troubling times? How are you personally going to persevere until the end. How is Good Shepherd going to persevere until the end? I don't know when Jesus is going to come back, but if I get to live another 50 years, 
That would be miraculous, but, but let's say I do, and I happen to be in southwest Houston, I want to be able to come and find Good Shepherd on the corner preaching the gospel 50 years from now. How are we going to ensure that Good Shepherd perseveres to the end until the Lord returns? One of the things that we have to do is we have to remember. We have to remember. Look at verses 17 through 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. These verses, uh, beginning with verse 17, begin to reorient the church's attention away from the false teachers that he's been hammering but these, but these, but these, he reorients their attention now with the signal, but you, but you, beloved, verse 17. And in verse 20, he repeats that, but you, beloved, building yourselves up. So we're now reorienting ourselves. Luke, uh, excuse me, Jude does. Having spent most of the letter urging a right way of viewing these false teachers, he now uses the words that characterizes the faithful people of God, you and beloved. And it's interesting that this is the exact same language that Jude uses when he first introduces the letter. He describes the believers, the recipients in verse one, if you look there, as those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. They need to know who they are. They are the called. They are beloved. They are kept. The main point here is that when you step back and you take stock of the sorry state of the church, when you see the apostates, the, the false teachers slipping in and, and wreaking havoc, and, and when you see the prevalence of worldliness and lack of discernment and scoffing at the truth, even among those naming the name of Jesus Christ, you might be tempted to think that God has failed. The mission has failed. The work of Christ has been in vain. And there's an encouragement for the church here in these verses. Remember, remember that you were already warned by the apostles that these things would happen, that this would be the case. And so don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. God wasn't. Jude reminds them that the apostles had already told them these things would happen. Who does Jude have in mind here? Probably Peter, since this seems to be a direct quote from 2 Peter, although there's some question here about whether uh, Peter wrote first and Jude uh, is, is uh, citing him or whether Jude wrote first and Peter's citing from him. My own personal view is that Peter is probably first here. But if you flip back probably about 10 or, or 12 pages in your New Testament, you'll come to the book of 2 Peter and look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And you'll see the similarities here. In 2 Peter 2, 1, Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. This is a similar concern to what Jude is, is expressing. And in chapter 3, Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment 
of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So instead of making you discouraged and tempting you to give up, it should actually encourage you that God is in control. He controls history. He foretells the future. His word through the apostles is accurate and faithful. And so remember, beloved, don't forget these things. Now, I want to make one final observation about this little section before we go on to the next point. But before we do, let me ask you a question. How many of you are familiar with the slogan or something like it that says, Doctrine divides, love unites? You've heard that before, right? Frequently, this sort of slogan reflects the sentiments of theological liberalism and others who are just simply indifferent to doctrine. And for people like this, uh, if we do what Jude suggests and call out false teachers for their faulty doctrine and sinful lifestyles, they would tell us that we are divisive, that our commitment to doctrine makes us harmful, hurtful, hateful, and unloving, and that we grieve the Spirit. That we are sowing discord in the body of Christ. But did you notice who Jude de uh, defines and identifies as the divisive ones in this passage? Reread verse 19 here with me. Let's go back to Jude. In verse 19, it says, It is these who cause divisions. Who's the these here? It's the false teachers. It's the apostates. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. You see, division is not the result of maintaining orthodox doctrine. It's the result of abandoning it. We stand upon God's Word. We draw a circle around God's Word, and we stand within the circle of His truth. And when false teachers depart from that circle, they are the ones who are sowing division and discord, not us. Those are the ones who grieve the Spirit of God. Jude says they are devoid of the Spirit. And note that this is similar to the Protestant Reformation. Back during that time in the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church accused the Protestants of dividing the one true church with their Lutheran doctrines of justification by faith and sola scriptura. But the Protestant reformers were actually very clever. And they reminded them, no, we're not the ones creating divisions here. And they would cite the early church fathers to them as support for their doctrines as well as the scriptures and say, look, what we have been teaching has been the truth all along. We're not the ones creating the division. You guys left the true teaching a long time ago and you're the ones who are divisive, not us. Well, I just, that's a, a little bit of, of an aside there. That's an extra five cents for you. Well, if we as the church are going to strive, survive, and thrive in troubling times, what else does Jude encourage us to do? Secondly, he encourages us to remain. To remain. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. And, and this is going to be the point that we end at today. And then when I come back, I'll pick up the next point um, in a couple weeks. Remain. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
The central idea of these two verses is to remain somewhere. To remain somewhere. But where? We are called to remain in the love of God. In these two verses, there are actually four main verbal ideas, verbal activities. One is the central verb, the main verb, and it comes in the form of, a, of an imperative or a command. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. The other three verbal ideas are subordinate to the main verb, the imperative. Uh, if you like to geek out on grammar, they're called participles in Greek. And uh, what they do is they serve to expound how the main verb happens. So if the main verb is a command, keep yourselves in the love of God, how do I carry out the command? Jude gives us three ways. One, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Two, by praying in the Holy Spirit. And three, by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So there's four main ideas here, one central, three that support it. I want to look at these four ideas that encompass our second response to times of apostasy. Remember, the first response is to remember, second, to remain. The direct command here is keep yourselves in the love of God. And that is at the beginning of verse 21. This is an imperative verb. Who is the subject? Who is supposed to do the keeping? What do you think? If I give you an imperative, who's supposed to do it? That's right, the you, right? Whoever the you is that the imperative is directed at is the one who is to do the action. The Chick-fil-A cow shows up and says, eat more chicken. <laughs> who is supposed to eat? You are supposed to eat more chicken, right? Uh, that's an imperative. Now, who is the object of this verb? Who is being acted upon? Keep yourselves. So interestingly, you are both the subject of the imperative verb and the object of the imperative verb. You're the object of the command. So who's responsible for this activity? You are. I know you're thinking this is a trick question, right? Because it doesn't sound very Calvinist or Reformed. And this raises a, <laughs> this raises a theological difficulty, one that is all over the Bible regarding the nature of sanctification and perseverance and how human responsibility intersects with divine sovereignty. In Jude, for example, like what we see it in Jude. Compare Jude 1 and Jude 24 with Jude 21. Look at Jude 1 there, okay? Go ahead and, 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 and just let your eyes go up. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved, of, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. The word kept there, same, same word here. It's a passive verb. Who is being kept here? Well, we are, right? The called, the beloved. These are the ones who are kept. Someone is keeping us. Who is keeping us? Presumably, God, the Father, is keeping us for Jesus Christ. And look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Who is the keeper here? Who is the subject of the keeping? Well, it's clearly God, right? God is the keeper. Who's the object? Us. 
God is the one who can keep us. And yet, in our verse, verse 21, we are the keepers and we are the objects of our keeping. Who is keeping and who is kept? Us and we. This is theologically difficult. Absolutely. And yet the scriptures have no problem presenting the two truths together, right? Uh, we keep ourselves as God keeps us. Philippians 2. Uh, it isn't just Jude. If you could flip uh, over to Philippians, uh, you, you see this in the Apostle Paul uh, in lots of places. But uh, in, in Philippians 2, he writes this in verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Interesting. Verse 12, who is working? The church, right? Me. I'm to work out my salvation. And at the end of verse 13, to will and work according to his good pleasure. I'm willing and working, and yet at the beginning of verse 13, who is at work in me? God. So who's the worker? God or me? The answer is yes. <laughs> right? There's, there's not a choice here. Galatians 2, 19 through 20. Paul says this. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Interesting. Paul says he no longer lives and Christ lives in him. And then he goes right on in the very next sentence to say, the life I live. So who's living, Christ or Paul? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. It is both, right? And, and so, so back to Jude, who is the keeper? Is it God or me? Yes, it's both of us, right? And so John Piper uh, writes this. Over and over in the Bible, we see this. God's action is decisive. Our action is dependent. And both actions are essential. So I urge you, again, he writes, to resist the mindset that cynically says, if God is the decisive keeper of my soul for eternal life, verses 1 and 24, then I don't need to keep myself in the love of God, verse 20. That would be like saying, since God is the decisive giver of life, then I don't need to breathe. No, no. Breathing is the means that God uses to sustain life. So the command to breathe is the command to fall in with the purposes and patterns of God to give and sustain life. This is what I mean by the term means of grace. Grace is the free keeping work of God to sustain our spiritual life that leads to everlasting joy. The means of grace is our keeping ourselves in the love of God. God's keeping inspires and sustains our keeping. His keeping is decisive and our keeping is dependent on his. End of quote. And thus, if I persevere in the love of God and make it to heaven, it will be because my sovereign keeper has kept me and he will keep me through energizing my persistence to continue in his love. God is sovereign over both the ends and the means. It's one of the things that 
in our reformed world, we, we really have to keep telling ourselves and telling other people. God not only guarantees the outcomes, but he guarantees the means he uses to get to the outcomes. At the cross, Jesus purchased for me and for you every spiritual blessing. And he guarantees those blessings for all he intends, his chosen people. But he bestows them on a people that he energizes to persevere. Now, my final point here uh, on this uh, imperative is what does Jude mean by calling us to keep ourselves in the love of God? What does he mean by that? John MacArthur summarizes it nicely, I think, when he says, Jude simply means this. Keep yourself in the place where you experience the blessing that God's love brings. Don't get on the bad side of God, is what he means. I mean, you understand that as a parent, I think. You know what it is for your children to keep themselves in the place where they enjoy the fullness of your love, right? It means don't get yourself in a position where you're going to feel his wrath, his chastening, his punishment. In John 15, you have an illustration that should clarify this. John 15, 9 and 10, it says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. What do you mean, abide in my love? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. I keep my Father's commandments, now I abide in his love. What does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? It means to keep yourself obedient. End of quote. So, what are the means that God gives to, to keep ourselves in his love? The text gives us three. Two of them come in verse 20, before verse 21, which is what we've been looking at here. And then the third one comes in the second half of verse 21. So let's look at those. What's the first means for keeping ourselves in the love of God? The first means is by building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Back to Jude. We look there. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. What is this most holy faith that we are to build ourselves up in? Well, one thing is for sure. It's not your subjective faith. Notice how this faith is described. It's described with the word most holy. Now, how many of you are willing to stand up and say, my personal faith is most holy? Hopefully nobody would be willing to do that. This is a superlative adjective for you grammar people. We have comparative adjectives. Nicer, easier, lazier, right? Versus nice, easy, and lazy. And we have superlative, which means you have something to the highest degree. Nicest, easiest, laziest. And here, most holy. Your personal faith is not most holy. Nor is mine, for that matter. Our faith is a mixture of good and bad. Of faith and doubt. Of truth and error. No, this, this word, most holy faith, refers to an objective thing. The objective faith. That is, the faith. When you put the, the word the in front of the faith, it's referring to what? It's the body of doctrines or teachings that you've put your trust and faith in. And, and this is cl uh, clear from Jude uh, verse 3. Look there, it says, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. What does he say about the faith? 
that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is a faith that is passed on to other saints in the form of a body of teaching given to the churches. It is an objective thing. It belongs to all the saints. And that's why he calls it your most holy faith. And it produces holiness in the saints, the holy ones, which is why it is most holy. Jesus in John 17, 17 says in his prayer, sanctify them, that is, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. This word is most holy because it produces holiness in the people of God. Now, what are we to do with the faith that he mentions? What is the verbal idea? Jude says, building yourselves up in it. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. This verb represents a dynamic, active thing. Think about a builder. Any of you ever hired a builder to build a home for you? Anybody had that experience? Okay. So uh, you hire a builder to build you a new home. What do you expect him to do? What, what, what does a builder do? Well, the first thing he does is he takes your money. <laughs> All right. He will do that. But what if he took your money, but day after day, week after week, you go to the lot where you've purchased your uh, home uh, or the property and you don't see anything being built? No earth being moved, no drainage, no foundation, no nothing. That's not a very active builder, is it? That's a passive builder. Takes your money and then he sits. God has not called you to be a passive builder. He has called you to build yourselves up in the most holy faith. And you must be active here. You must build. You must take advantage of the means that God has given you to build yourself up in the most holy faith in the word of God. How would you do that? Well, there are several ways I'm sure that your church provides that for you. Sunday morning and Sunday evening worship. Do you miss these at times when it's simply because of a lack of desire to be here? When there's no providential hindering of you from being here? Just tired. You made poor choices on Saturday. Didn't get your work done. Stayed up too late watching whatever it was you were watching. And so when Sunday morning rolls around and you have an opportunity to come and build yourself up in your most holy faith, you take a pass. Or maybe Sunday night, hold something else, a better promise for you, you think. There are a number of people who um, you probably know who are, um, well, you could describe as, as, as sort of lukewarm now, who once were very active and very energetic in serving and, and growing in the life of the church. And, and every time the church's doors were open, they were there, but now they come maybe sp sporadically, maybe here, maybe at, at a different church. And, and, and if you were to ask those people, uh, wh why aren't you coming regularly? Uh, if they were to actually vocalize the real reason, they would be embarrassed and ashamed. And I would just suggest that the answer to that embarrassment and shame is not to stay away and keep silent about it, but to repent and to change and to develop a view of why this is so important that you wouldn't want to miss the gathered church when it meets together because the word of God is proclaimed and you are engaging in building work 
you are building yourselves up in the most holy faith. This is how you will strive and survive in troubling times. There are probably opportunities for discipleship, midweek Bible studies, perhaps, personal Bible reading. All of these are means that God uses to build us up. Some don't commit to the word because they, don't just, they just don't want to box themselves up into the narrow confines of the teaching of an ancient document colored by the prejudices of enlightened men thousands of years ago. You want to be open to the culture. You want to be flexible and open-minded. Well, if open-mindedness is your highest value, if you believe in what Pete Enns, the lapsed Reformed theologian from Westminster, Philly, what he calls the sin of certainty, if you believe in what and calls the sin of certainty. And may I remind you of something that G.K. Chesterton once said. Chesterton wrote this. <clears throat> Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind is, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Otherwise, it could end up like a city sewer rejecting nothing. An open mind and an open mouth are open because they need to shut on something solid, don't they? We have too many people who have open minds, and what their minds have become is a sewer. My friends, open your minds in order to receive something solid and firm. Don't be the open-mouthed fool who walks around with his mouth agape. Why should you close your mouth on the solid food of the Word of God? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says when he bids farewell to the elders of the church of Ephesus, knowing that he would never see them again. He says this in Acts 20. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw, after the, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Why would Paul commend them to God and the word of his grace? Why the word? Listen to how he describes it, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Jude and Paul are on the same page here. How are you going to build yourself up in the most holy faith? By building yourselves up in the word of God. Don't neglect it. That's the first means for keeping yourself in the love of God. The second means is by praying in the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, uh, second half. But you, most beloved, uh, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not speaking in tongues. There's nothing, absolutely nothing in the context to support that notion. Further, this means of grace is given to the whole church, Right? This is to all the saints who are the recipients of the letter. Whenever Paul ever speaks of tongues in the New Testament, it's clear that not all are expected to do so. So wherever you land on the issue of whether that gift is for today or not, I don't think so. But even if you thought it was for today, 
Paul never suggests that it's for everybody. But, but what he's talking about here is praying in the Holy Spirit is for all of them. Tom Schreiner, New Testament theologian, uh, puts it this way. He points out, more likely the prayer in the Spirit is the ordinary prayer that should be part of the warp and woof of the Christian life. A striking parallel is found in Ephesians 6.18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. The context in Ephesians clarifies that speaking in tongues is not primarily in view. Requests for the furtherance of God's will and resistance to the devil's attacks are the focus. Similarly, in Jude, the injunction to pray should be understood broadly. Believers cannot keep themselves in God's love without depending on Him by petitioning Him in prayer. Love for God cannot be sustained without a relationship with Him, and such a relationship is nurtured by prayer. So, we need word and prayer. You can't have one without the other. The third and final means that Jude points out for how we keep ourselves in the love of God is by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Look at verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This waiting is no ho-hum, lackluster kind of waiting. Sort of like waiting for a dental cleaning in the waiting room. Or waiting for a bus to take you to court downtown to pay a speeding ticket. It's the kind of eager waiting, expectant waiting, that is like waiting for Christmas when you're a kid. I know, like as adults, we, we sort of dread it sometimes. <laughs> oh, it's coming. Oh, no, honey. Christmas is two weeks away. We haven't shopped yet, right? But when you're a kid, there is an eager and expectant sort of waiting when you know Christmas is coming. Three weeks away. Two weeks away. School's out. One week away. And so forth. In fact, this word for awaiting in Greek is used in Luke 2 in connection with a few characters who um, are described immediately following the Christmas story. The prophet Simeon in Luke 2, 25 through 32 is described as, as, um, as a man in Jerusalem named Simeon uh, who was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was waiting. All his life he was waiting. It's interesting because Luke says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so then here come Joseph and Mary bringing uh, Jesus uh, in to the temple area. And Simeon lays eyes on him and sees him, takes him uh, in his arms. He, he, he blesses God. And now that he has seen what he has been eagerly expecting, what's he ready to do? He's ready to die. He says, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He's ready to go. I've, I've seen what I've eagerly expected. The prophetess Anna, likewise, is described as one uh, who um, would speak uh, uh, of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. She had been waiting in the temple uh, all her life. What are we waiting for, this eager kind of expectation? The text tells us the mercy of Jesus Christ leads to eternal life. And this is really the end game of all, of all God's purposes in the present world, isn't it? What if God sent Jesus, he died on the cross, created a church, gave us fellowship with one another, gave us a Christian identity, and then when all is said and done, 
it turns out that there is no everlasting mercy and no eternal life. We gave ourselves wholly and entirely to benefits that exist only in this present age. And even then, our best life now is only sporadically good. Would it be worth it? Would it be worth trading your whole life for benefit that only exists in the present world? No. And our best life is not now. We live our not-so-great lives now in light of and in the earnest hope of an eschatological mercy that results in God setting all things aright and us experiencing the consolation and redemption that Christ brought for us at the cross and guarantees for all who trust in Him. We begin to taste that eschatological mercy now. We have it through the work of Christ and through the deposit of the Spirit in us. But we don't have it fully yet. But the Spirit is the guarantee that He will bring it to pass. Living in light of the future mercy of God for us in Christ will affect our lives now and enable us to keep ourselves in the love of God until then. The Apostle Paul understood this when he wrote to Titus in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when? In the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We belong to him. He will come back for us. And we live our lives now in the hope of that future coming. I'm going to end <clears throat> just by um, reading a story that, uh, that, that one would find at the end of D.A. Carson's uh, chapter 3 in a book he wrote called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. And it beautifully, beautifully exemplifies the fact that seeing properly the end, the goal, will keep us pressing forward in the right way for the right reasons. Listen to what Carson writes. In 1952, a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick stepped off the beach at Catalina Island and into the water, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She was already an experienced long-distance swimmer. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly on the day she set out. She could scarcely see the boats that would accompany her. For 15 hours, she swam. <clears throat> I can't imagine 15 minutes, honestly. For 15 hours, she swam. She begged to be taken out, but her trainer urged pers persistence, telling her again and again that she could make it and that the shore was not far away. Physically and emotionally exhausted, she finally just stopped swimming. And she was pulled out. The boats made for the shore, and she discovered it was a mere half mile away. The next day, she gave a news conference. What she said, in effect, was this. I do not want to make excuses for myself. I am the one who asked to be pulled out. But I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, she proved her point. On a bright and clear day, she plunged back into the sea and swam the distance. End of quote. 
Brothers and sisters, that's what we're doing. We're swimming. We're swimming a long way. We seem to be swimming upstream against very strong currents. And we have been called to keep ourselves in the love of Christ. How are we going to do it? How are we going to? We can't do it unless we see the end. Unless our hope is rooted in that coming of Jesus Christ to bring mercy and to restore all things. And we will persevere if we keep the goal in mind. And so, let's do that. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for the time together to soak in your word, to let it challenge our thinking and our affections. We thank you for the mercy of Jesus Christ, how he, as the sin bearer, took our sins upon himself, bore the wrath of God against the sin of this world, and was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand, and pours out the Holy Spirit on all who come to him. Lord, we thank you for your mercy, which we experience not just now, but will experience when the Lord Jesus returns. And we give ourselves to you. Lord, help us to remember what you said. Help us to remain in your love by building ourselves up in the most holy faith, by praying in the Spirit, and by fixing our hope on the mercy to be revealed in Jesus Christ. We love you. We are grateful for your love for us. We love because you first loved us. You are good and gracious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.